With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. A new Star Wars movie is making its way to theaters. You think it'll be good? Eagerly awaited. A gigantic investment of time and money. It better have, like, some cool monsters in it. Unproven talents, explosive budgets, and a fandom so dripping with anticipation that they could tear this world apart if it sucks. Yoda looks weird. You think it'll be good? The year is 1980, and holy shit, little did they realize the greatest sci-fi and American movie ever made, uh, my favorite fucking film ever put on a goddamn VHS. Blade Runner? No, you, you <laughs> I'm sorry, scruffy, I apologize. You scruffy, <laughs> fuckity shitball nerf herder. Wow, Jake. You nerf herder. That's right, you heard nerfs. How dare you call me a band's name. <laughs> hey, everybody, I'm your stinky, dinky bruiser, Holden McNeely. And I'm your mystical space wizard, Jake. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Now, we covered A New Hope on a much earlier episode. I'm sure we'll get to Return of the Jedi at some point. I thought it was a what good time. Time. Maybe not, though. <laughs> Maybe just everything else. We'll do Return of the Jedi and the prequels all I in would, one. I would rather do Attack of the Clones than Return <laughs> of the Jedi. Um, uh, just an episode on Wookiees. I mean, uh, or on uh, Ewoks, rather. Just an episode on Ewoks. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great time to... Um, to, to do this one, you know, we've got uh, uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi um, that just came out. I just got to see it finally, um, and I know we'll be talking about some more of that on the some bonus content for uh, uh, Wizard and the Bruiser. But, um, uh, yeah, it's a really perfect time to go back and look at the old middle chapter um, from the 70s. Uh, and, yes, I would agree. I would definitely say it's the best Star Wars film. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely on the short list for probably my favorite, you know, sci-fi films of all time. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite a feat. It's quite a marvel. And it's interesting how, you know, it's definitely arguable, you know, what's the stronger film, A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back or Godfather 3. But I think that we can all agree that really this, this film has the most depth to it, has the most interesting, you know, character. I mean, and it has the big line that everybody fucks up, uh, you know, this ultimate quoted thing from Star Wars. Like you can't, I mean, it is what the whole trilogy. The biggest thing it's known for. It's uh, Luke. I am your father. That is the line. <laughs> um, fuck spoiler warnings on Empire Strikes Back, by the way. Oh, yeah. Like, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you, audience. If, are you a baby? Are you a literal baby? How did you end up listening to this podcast? You should be shown this movie at age five. <laughs> this and film- you should shit your pants when the Minoc just blasts onto the windshield and just gives you a case of the shit pants. This film, directed uh, by Irvin Kirshner, came out in 1980. Written the writing credit is given to two people, and I really want to start digging in here: uh, Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan. Now, I, I was very familiar with Lawrence Kasdan, though we will be discussing him as well in some depth. But I had not really heard much about Lee Brackett, and I will preface this preface this with uh, the fact that it's highly debated how much of Lee Brackett's script actually made it into the final product, um, and most people side with not much. But I still think this is a 
fascinating fucking character. And personally, after reading her backstory, I do think that a lot of her tone, her um, just basic uh, uh, sort of types of stories that she she liked to tell up to this point bled in to Lucas's script that he later uh, completely uh, uh, rewrote himself. So Lee Brackett, born in 1915 in Los Angeles, California, she was definitely a lady that you know was uh, in the, in the LA scene in the LA world. Um, she married uh, another science fiction writer, uh, Edmund Hamilton, which I didn't even bring this up. She was a science fiction writer. She wrote stories her first story was called martian quest um and it came out in the february 1940 issue of astounding science fiction she uh her stories had really fun titles like the stellar legion and the demons of dark side and the dragon queen of jupiter um these were all in those little sci-fi magazines like planet stories strange stories super science stories uh all this type of stuff you know she would publish all that kind of you know back when sci-fi was like really huge back in the 40s um, and she got into uh, novel noveling. Is that a word? She got into novel. She did a dabbled in some noveling. Jake Young. She. I think you need a quill pen to do some noveling. <laughs> she um, she wrote a uh, her first book was called No Good from a Corpse. Um, and it was a hard-boiled mystery novel. Now, it's very apparent that she was also really into Raymond Chandler um, uh, and and noir. And noir, of course, also a big thing at that time. Very separate, disparate entities that she was dabbling in both sides of. She was writing a lot of sci-fi prose and then a lot of, um, like, she got into screenwriting and her screenplay writing was all noir. Now, immediately, I w- when I was reading this, I was like, mind-fucking-blown, Empire Strikes Back is is totally like got all these noir vibes to it, and yet it's this like classic sci-fi story. It it, it reeks of this woman's background and everything that she kind of did. What are, what are up. some ways that uh, the Empire Strikes Back kind of mirrors noir? Okay, not just in its darkness. Definitely a big family incestual twist. <laughs> Super important. Super important to noir. Very, it totally definitely has that feeling. Definitely that feeling of, you know, just all of all of the leaving you hanging in in, in upsetting ways. Han Solo getting uh, frozen. Um, uh, uh, of Lando cor- and Boba Fett kind of representing like underworld elements and yeah, people uh, looking out for number one. Totally underworld like conflict is actually happening, and and I mean, Job Job of the Hut. Does Job of the Hut mention in the first one? Uh, I think he's yeah, he's mentioned mentioned. Or he, this is to- this is the this is the fucked up part. Lucas has like re-edited and reinserted so yeah, much shit. Like it's uh, hard. Uh, the version I watched to catch up, it took me forever to realize that they had like put back in um, the actor who did Django Fett. And all the clones, the New Zealand guy whose name I should remember, but I didn't, um, (laughs) instead of the original guy who gave it like a much more growlier uh, voice. Mm. And uh, they put in um, the emperor, the current emperor in the version I watched, Mm. whereas uh, like the actual Palpatine in the original version, they hadn't cast they hadn't cast uh, Palpatine yet. So it was like. It was Rick Baker's wife with superimposed, like, fake chimp taxidermy eyes over her. (laughs) It's really freaky to look at the original Emperor. I did watch that footage as well, (laughs) and I was, like, way confused. Way confused by what I was seeing. What I'm trying to say is, like, when I'm like, oh, yeah, and, of course, this happens in Empire, I could be wrong. Maybe your Empire was different. A brother and sister unknowingly kiss. How do you get (laughs) – that's the most noir thing (laughs) – Anyways, they they weren't in they weren't they didn't know that Leia was the there is another yet. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. like kind of a it was kind of an escape valve in and case de- something happened in case Lou in case uh, Mark Hamill got caught in another car accident. And there were definitely there's definitely just lots of, you know, I think lighting and things that are reminiscent of noir. A lot of, you know, this is the shadow shadowy or episode of the three you know i mean this is the darker and playing with that sort of look with a big mystery that gets unraveled as the film goes on i think another um way that uh lee or lay i l-e-i-g-h i can't whatever um is uh, <laughs> I think it's lee she worked on howard hawks movies which mm-hmm. were these like bombastic i was about to get Hollywood into that kind of movies so her first um 
her first big movie was The Big Sleep. She co-wrote it. I mean, it, again, I'm probably hopefully blowing some minds here because The Big Sleep is huge. She fucking adapted, and this is all, a lot of these are, that's a Raymond Chandler adaptation of a 1939 novel starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. I don't know if I've actually seen The Big Sleep, but a movie that I have seen that's one of my favorite noirs of all time, maybe one of my favorite movies, is The Long Goodbye. The Long Goodbye is fucking awesome, and to see that she wrote that, especially also like a a woman sci-fi writer and screenplay writer in the the successful as balls in the 40s is pretty amazing to me. Like, this woman's story is awesome. I just got way into it. Um, but, yes, she she apparently Howard Hawks has read, read No Good from a Corpse, which was her novel set on Mars. Um, she was getting more tough and cynical. Some of that uh, detective story, film noir influence starting to seep in. It's about Martian rebels and humans dealing with the company. Definitely, definitely Star Wars vibes there. Uh, and Howard Hawks was so impressed by the book that he, um, he <laughs> had his secretary call in this guy bracket is uh is um apparently what he said to help William Faulkner write the script of The Big Sleep. Um she was hired and then she wrote all these fucking John Wayne movies. She wrote Rio Bravo. Right. She's fucking great like El Dorado, Hatari, Rio Lobo. I'm less familiar with those. Um but uh yeah, and then Robert Altman hires her to adapt Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. If you haven't seen The Long Goodbye, highly recommend it. Fucking awesome movie. Um and then, you know, her, her general writing moved more into a melancholy tone. She was starting to um, look more into, like, the concept of, like, passing civilizations and this kind of uh, uh, more introspective kind of, and this is in her sci-fi. Um, and then she, uh, the, she wrote uh, The Long Tomorrow. Um, and uh, she's often referred to, I love this quote too, because this is like amazing for Star Wars. She was referred to as the queen of space opera because she was also r- really into writing plan- planetary romance stories um, happening between, you know, different entities in space. Um, uh, and uh, what a prominent theme of her stories, the clash of planetary civilizations. The, uh, the stories illustrate and criticize the effects of co- uh, colonialism and civilizations that are either older or younger than those of the colonizers. There's so many just different little elements that you could say, man, that f- fucking sounds like empire, you know? And I think it's really, it's really kind of awesome. Um, and it really feels like, it, you know, for as much as it's apparently said that so she wrote the first draft uh, based on a story that Lucas had already devised. Um, and then she shortly afterwards died uh, from cancer on March 18th, 1978. So um, from there, though, it is apparently said that Lucas was not happy with her draft and uh, then completely rewrote it uh, and then wrote. Another draft immediately afterwards started really feeling um, enthusiastic about where the work was heading and kind of moved on from there. Um, so uh, and, and this is kind of what, what's been said. But people do still say they can feel in certain lines of dialogue in the script. They can still he- hear her influence and really hear kind of where she was uh, uh, that she really did have maybe more of a hand than people like to say. Um, what's the, interesting is the Wikipedia quote. Uh, which one? The uh, that like even though it's the it's been said that there are lots of rewrites, like so many key moments like were in her original draft yeah. that had been on un- that's still unpublished. Now that well, here you go. Braggett's screenplay has never been officially or legally published, but according to Stephen Hafner, it can be read at the Jack Williamson Special Collections Library at the Eastern New Mexico University in Portales, New Mexico. That's so, some Raiders of the Lost Ark How fucking, bullshit. right? How nuts is that? Um, and we're totally going to be talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark this episode, too, so good, <laughs> good example. Um, yeah, it may not be copied or checked out. Um, and the archives at Lucasfilm in California apparently have a draft as well. But, oh, it does say it is available on the internet as a PDF file. So maybe you can do some <laughs> digging and find it. Of course it is, right? Like, imagine, like, oh, can you just imagine, like, the physically overpowering the nerd at the library at that one Arizona, was it Arizona where the college was? It is, I'll say it one more time, Eastern New Mexico, New Mexico. University in the Jack Williamson Special Collections Library. Hey, hey, cut it out. Stop, stop scanning it, that for a 
Wikipedia. <laughs> this is the Jack Williamson Library. You stop. No, this is microfiche. This isn't. I'm not copying. Hey, quit this. it. I'm not scanning this. Don't don't throw me in the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, so anyways, that's where her story kind of ends, but it definitely was a really cool start yeah. to my research in, in in the history of this film. And and Lee Brackett, I, I'm I am a big fan now. I'm I'm really a huge fan of her her writing. I mean, unbelievable. It's um it also speaks to like kind of why Star Wars took over as much as it did is that not only was it an achievement in filmmaking, and we'll get into all the technical craziness that like they accomplished but the fact is is that hollywood was in the middle of this very like dour kind of like character driven period where it was about like prestige and like a new generation like okay so the uh like the best picture nominees for that year uh you know star wars got all the technical awards but it was um, coal miner's daughter the uh, elephant man raging bull yeah. ordinary people these yes. are all like super downer Fuck. Like new, like whatever the, you know, it's, I'm so bad at expressing this, but <laughs> the fact that Star Wars was swashbuckling and high flying and operatic and was like a fun movie uh, really was like just a punch in the stomach. It feels weird thinking of an era where like before the blockbuster. Yeah. But Spielberg and uh, Lucas really did do something different. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I'm going to jump to this because we're on it. But uh, even from the opening credits, uh, they got into a massive dispute uh, over this with um, the uh, what is it? All the guilds. With every (laughs) guild. Lucas left all of the guilds after this. Um, But yeah, yeah, it was um, he was fined like $250,000 for it for uh, putting none of the like. Uh, credits really at the beginning of the film. He was actually the first person to do that. Um, I think he apparently he did do it for the first Star Wars movie, but I guess he got away with it because he directed it himself. Oh, it was just such a small weird little movie that that no one cared? Yeah, whatever, George. Right, right. So, But once it became a billion dollar empire, they're like, no, our guys worked on this. They get to be in the beginning of the movie. Right? So the Directors Guild's uh, Guild of America tried to have the movie pulled from theaters and also direct uh, attacked director Irvin Kirshner with fines as well. Lucas paid all of the fines off for Kirshner and himself and everything um, and immediately left the Directors and Writers Guilds as well as the Motion Picture Association just pieced out. And he's always kind of butted heads with Hollywood. I mean, that's why, if we want to get into that, as well he um uh set out to fund this film himself out of pocket he didn't want to deal with the industry he wanted to uh filming your own movie i mean paying for bankrolling your own movie out of pocket is considered one of the single dumbest things a every a filmmaker can do everybody recommends against it It is the it is the rule it is the rule. It's ba- yeah. You know who bankrolls his own movie? Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> like it's the the genuine freaks of the Hollywood like fringe. It's like representing yourself on trial. Like it's just you don't do it. So he did it with th- thirty three million dollars from loans and film earnings. Um, and uh, yeah, and and that's how we got things started. Uh, and we we're already talking about Irvin Kirshner, um, even though I feel like we need to go back and talk about Lawrence yeah. Kasdan. Um, but but Lucas, uh, uh, yeah, did we'll get to Kasdan in our groundbreaking episode about the movie Dreamcatcher, <laughs> my favorite fucked up movie of all time. <laughs> Isn't that a that Stephen King adaptation? It's a Stephen right? King adaptation. It is terrible. Yeah, uh, Donnie think... Wahlberg plays a mentally handicapped man yes. with cancer. I think, uh, uh, how did this get made? Uh, not to shout out another podcast on our podcast, but whatever. I love that podcast. Uh, they did an episode on it, and it's hilarious. So anyway. You know what's more hilarious? The movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I hear a Giggle Flicks uh, opportunity oh. in there. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, let's talk about Lawrence Kasdan before we get into uh, Irvin Kirshner. Lawrence Kasdan was born in 1949 in Miami, Florida, the son of Sylvia Sarah. Um, an employment counselor, and Clarence Norman Kasdan, who managed retail electronics stores. So if you're a child uh, of two parents with intensely boring jobs, you also might be a great prolific writer at some point in your life. Uh, He graduated from the University of Michigan with an M.A. in education to be an English teacher. 
uh, if you can imagine. And um, he was a student of Kenneth Thorpe Rowe. Now, this guy is really interesting. This is a playwriting teacher who regarded the craft as something that could be understood and analyzed. He definitely had that like scientific approach. Uh, he had a remarkable insight in how a writer could construct a play with an eye toward the most effective development of plot and emotion. I think that's really says a lot about Kazdin's writing approach. It's pretty obvious he was very, very uh, influential on Kazdin. All successful plays, in his opinion, are built dramatically from an attack, the introduction of a conflict through a crisis and finally to a resolution. Um, one of his uh, bigger name students was Arthur Miller. Uh, uh, he taught Arthur Miller a great deal about structure and revision. He was also just known as one of those teachers. Again, this guy named Kenneth Thorpe Rowe, and he wrote a lot of books, by the way. So if you are interested in learning more about the craft of play and screenwriting, um, you actually might want to look into this guy and his teaching methods. Uh, he more importantly about uh, Lawrence Kasdan, uh, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page, uh, and it is very important that on January 14th, uh, you have to wish him a happy birthday because he turns 69 years old. Hey! Nice. Best number ever. If only we could turn 420. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, you would have did. <laughs> Uh, uh, but anyways, uh, he was also just known as that kind of teacher uh, that really cultivated his students. And uh, it was the kind of teacher the students really, really, like, loved, loved. Um, uh, uh, he also, uh, another thing, I really, I really, this is maybe more personal for me. I really love this kind of stuff, like, I, as a student of playwriting and screenplay writing. Like, so learning about a really awesome. Kid. Yeah, I was a theater kid. Learning about a really awesome teacher like this, especially after butting heads with a lot of my teachers in college. Uh, it's really cool to see that. Holden, stop acting with your hands. <laughs> um, the <laughs> I just pissed myself, you know, <laughs> which is what I would do every time to show dramatic tension in my acting scenes. That was part of your bag of tricks. Yes, one might say <laughs> that in weed was in the bag of tricks. Um, weed, weed again? Yeah, just weed and piss. The whole McNeely story. Uh, <laughs> the theater he felt was not a carousel one jumped into, but an instrument one had to learn to play. I couldn't agree more. And and it is you do if you do want to be a good screenplay writer playwriter you really do need to learn about it like one might learn about any craft you must know it in in, in depth and understand structure to it to a high degree um so anyways he's really interesting taught lawrence kasdan a lot even though lawrence kasdan wanted to uh, just go ahead and be a teacher he ended up not getting that work guess what he got working jake i feel like it's every single writer that we have covered on this show the glamorous world of marketing. <laughs> advertising copywriter. Uh, that is uh, so, again, too, if you are an advertising copywriter and you have dreams for more, you are, you will, you'll, you'll make it, buddy. No, it's if you're an advertising copywriter, you have an in depth understanding of just dumb people want dumb stuff. <laughs> um, he didn't enjoy it, surprisingly, and in, instead uh, uh, decided to move to LA. Um, he was living in Detroit at the time. Uh, moves to L.A., still a copywriter. While in Hollywood, though, he wrote a little script, a little-known script. This is kind of amazing, Jake. I don't know if you know about this one. He wrote The Bodyguard, all right? But he wrote it in the 70s, uh, and it was rejected 67 times. Nice. It was oh, no, wait. Sorry. Wrong at number. one point, it was sold, though, and that kind of launched his career. But it was supposed to start Diana Ross and Steve McQueen. Um, That's hilarious. And then it got stuck in development hell. And this, kind of like being John Malkovich, this was like the best unmade screen you know it was kind of known as that screenplay that's like this is the best and no and it just can't be made it for some reason like um so it wasn't until of course years and years later um that he ended up getting that uh that ended up getting made with costner and whitney houston um two decades later yeah yeah so that's some development hell so he also sold a screenplay called continental divide to one steven spielberg um and it was actually the first film produced under his production company amblin entertainment it was a romantic comedy starring john belushi and blair brown i tried to look into it. he's like it's like an outdoorsy thing kind of a great outdoors ish kind of thing with the with two you know a reporter from the city who has to flee because he got caught up in some seedy underworld stuff and you know meets this like outdoorsy girl and it's the city guy and the outdoorsy Hold lady on, can i do an impression of our audience right now yeah when are they gonna get to the fucking lightsabers <laughs> <laughs> there's a red one and a fucking blue one or whatever but then they switch them but then they don't <laughs> um uh so anyways um this is where we get closer to the films 
George Lucas, uh, after Continental Divide, commissions Kasdan to write Raiders of the Lost Ark. Callback hey. to your example you used earlier. Um, and then, after the success of that, went uh, uh, to write Empire. Um, also, t- by the way, just throwing it out there about Lawrence Kasdan wrote he wrote the co-wrote the Force Awakens with J.J. Uh, Abrams. Yeah, as well, he's written so many amazing things. Um, but I, I just. How crazy, just thinking back at that time, it's like they're hopping from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Empire Strike. Like no, 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 Raiders, I think he was pleased with the script for Raiders. Okay. And then... Um, Did Raiders come out after Empire? It came out after. Uh, this is the story... It's just still the fact that they're laying the foundation for like... A generation's worth of movies. Yeah. But, the, but here's the thing, though. All the, especially. I Indiana, love how you threw that away. A generation's worth of movies. Yeah, yeah. No, Indiana Jones <laughs> and Star Wars are both harken back to old movie series. Yes. Again, old. Like, George Lucas fucking hates Hollywood, but, like, if you look at what he's made, his childhood was clearly in love with totally. movies. Mm-hmm. Although, then when you interview him, he just talks like, oh, I'm actually a sad, weird robot who enjoys the serenity of editing. <laughs> and, I mean, nothing is more... Uh, oh, no, wait, that wasn't... Dr- I've been trying to capture my Irvin Kirshner voice, and that was like a little bit... Irvin uh, uh, Kirshner, if, here's how you do it. You do uh, Ray Romano uh, uh, doing a Bernie Sanders impression. <laughs> now, the thing about the movie is that if you got to do a thing... And it is now, now, Carrie, Carrie, wonderful girl. Uh, and, and we're working with these puppets. <laughs> that's the top phenomenal. 5% of the top 1%. Deborah! <laughs> that's, that's Irvin Kirshner. Um, the fuck was I even going to talk about? <laughs> oh, nothing screams more classic Hollywood, in my opinion, than that opening night. Uh, picture out front of the Chinese theater mm-hmm. in LA for the the premiere of Empire. I mean, it just looks so like classic fucking Hollywood. It's amazing. So I really even even in even in the way it debuted, it, it just kind of harkened back to that time. Oh, uh, so the deal with the uh, Raiders is that uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox, and uh, Alan Ladd Jr. I believe was the executive mm-hmm. w- agreed to distri- to distribute Empire Strikes Back. Because, uh, you know, even though uh, Lucas was putting down the money to make the movie, uh, you know, to actually get into theaters required a network that he just didn't have access Mm. to. So uh, when the movie fell behind and got over budget, he like we'll get into because it's kind of an amazing story as well. He needed more money and 20th Century Fox, they butted heads. And eventually Alan Ladd was like, fuck it. This thing's going to make a million dollars. Yeah, sure. Have some extra money. And he didn't get any of the rights. And so they fired him. Unlike merchandising or anything, and it was such a money loss uh, for not. But it wasn't because they made a bunch of money because they distributed the Empire Strikes Back. And so that entire process, they fired Alan Ladd uh, after that. And so the entire process was such a headache for George Lucas, who was already like just destroying his entire life to get this movie made, that when he had this killer script for uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He jumped ship to Paramount. That's ah. that's where the connection. I'm is. so glad you had that on the ready because I read through that information and I was just like, I can't even wrap my. I didn't. I didn't even take notes on it because I was just like, this seems so confusing. So that was really wonderfully uh, put. Um, so so initially, Irvin Kershner uh, was offered the role and he turned it down. He felt that a sequel, it was because he loved it though so much, he loved the original. He felt a sequel would never meet the quality the uh, or originality of Star Wars. Also, but and then his at the agent time, ca- sequels were the kiss of death. Yeah. You don't make a sequel. Why on earth would you release a movie that only appealed to people who had seen the previous movie? What a right. dumb idea. Right. Uh, if you were if you were going to make a sequel at the time, you made it half-assed on the cheap because you knew the audience was going to be that much smaller. Uh, look for look at Jaws two for an example of like that attitude where even though the original was such a hit, they still like cheaped out on the sequel. Right. Right. Totally. Um, There's so many examples and like Kirshner was one of uh, Lucas's professors from USC when he was going yes. to film school, mm-hmm. and specifically Kirshner spoke very highly and advocated for Lucas's student film THX. 1138 yes so like it's for lucas to be like you're the man i must entrust uh it was a lot of like you know oh i know you work well with characters and we need this to be like a character driven movie while i focus on the effects but also like yeah you recognize you recognize that the luke boy is number one (laughs) king dick around here (laughs) 
<laughs> I hope he talks like that. Um, and I don't mean the tone of voice. I hope he says stuff like, I'm the king dick around. The Lukey boy is the king dick around here. That would really. Anybody got a problem with Jar Jar Binks? Take it up to the Lukey boy. Yeah, I think a few people do, Lukey boy. I can't hear you. I'm too busy fucking your mom. <laughs> Whoa. She's Whoa. Grab- she's grabbing my weird neck meat. Oh, I hope she doesn't actually call you Lukey boy. <laughs> While it's Every, happening. Everybody calls me Lukey Boy. No one calls you good. Lukey Boy. I gave $5 million in bonuses to my staff. So Irvin Kershner turned it down, but immediately got a phone call from his agent who said, uh, yeah, fuck you, I you're doing 10%. this movie. <laughs> yeah, I get 10% of this fucking crazy movie. So apparently this is the quote from, I think your Lukey Boy quote is probably more authentic, but this is the quote uh, as Kirshner Lucas uh, tell, or as Kirshner tells it. Of all the younger guys, he said to, to George Lucas, of all the younger guys around, all the hot shots, why me? And Lucas replied, well, because you know every Everything a Hollywood director is supposed to know, but you're not Hollywood. Irvin Kirshner was born in Philadelphia back in the motherfucking early 20s. All right. Yeah, let's send you back to a time. All right. Let's send you back to, hey, we're all racist, yeah? Let's send you back to a time. He studied music actually at first, um, specifically violin and viola, as well as competition, uh, uh, competition, composition at. Do Temple- we have to go into Irving Kirshner's life story? When do we get so. to the lightsabers? We're not getting to the lightsabers. There's literally nothing in here about lightsabers. <laughs> they're swords, but they're not. They want to know the backstory. What is the lightsaber? Okay, it's a fucking laser. It doesn't even make any sense. The lightsabers. It's a crystal in it. it. You've all been living a lie. Every one of you like these films. All right. I really love those foot, like the back <laughs> behind the scenes footage of the lightsaber fights when they're just little metal sticks. Yeah. And they're just like tick, tack, tickety, tack. <laughs> so much of what well, I mean, and this is one of the first instances, too, of like Mark Hamill, a guy who was literally like, yeah, I spent. Like three months on a stage with a bunch of props and like puppets. Oh, Mark Hamill got the shaft in this movie. <laughs> he was losing his mind. I think this is one of the first instances of just being like, yeah, like, because I remember. Um, we'll get into the film. We'll get into the film. Maybe. I remember too, um, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Ian McKellen had a similar tale about filming The Hobbit, where he literally just started breaking down in tears, being like, this is not why I got into acting, because he's just surrounded by green screens. This is an actual quote from Mark Hamill about his time filming uh empire strikes back i have this theory that the blue screen gives off rays that penetrate the brain and make you go crazy harrison really flipped out once picked up a saw and started sawing through the console of the millennium falcon which looks like metal but is actually made of wood everyone was saying do we stop him no you stop him i'm not gonna stop him i had no desire to wind up on the floor if he decked me the worst is, is that if you're in the cockpit, you're supposed to see stars or asteroids or whatever special effect, but we don't see anything. This is Carrie Fisher talking. Okay. Or in the, We're looking at a corner of a camera, and they're screaming, there's an asteroid. Look out. <laughs> uh, we did two or three days in the cockpit shooting the back. Uh, oh. Okay, whatever. I I got the behind the scenes book. And that it's was full of weird. Awesome. Notes. That's awesome. Um, thank you for that. So he also studied. Uh, <laughs> Irving Gerster studied music. He also studied painting from a fam- famous painting teacher named Hans Hoffman, uh, who believed that abstract art was a way to get at the important reality. The ability to simplify means to eliminate the unnecessary so that the necessary may speak. Now, I'm just giving you sort of his basic influences to try to give you a better understanding of maybe some of his directorial approaches in the film. And then I will talk about your precious lightsabers also, audience. Also the X-Wings. And the X-Wings. We'll talk and about the and AT, AT, ATATs, right? And the Cloud City of Bespin. It's not AT-ATs, right? It's ATATs, right? You can call them AT-ATs. They're, uh, oh, God, I used to know this. That's like a whole thing, All-terrain right? armored transport. There you there go. We go. So uh, he also studied photography uh, at the Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles. Of course, I'm talking about director Irvin Kirshner, who directed Empire Strikes Back. Um, and then, because he's a bad... This is one of those people's lives where I'm just like, how did he cram all of this stuff in? I feel like... Like I've done nothing with my life when I read about a person like this. He studies was, music. No, he studies uh, painting. There was no he internet. Studies, they had more time to kill. He studies photography, and then he goes off to war and serves three years in the U.S. 8th Air Force as a flight engineer. Then he teaches photography at the University of Southern California School of the Cinematic Arts, where he took cinema courses under Slavko Vorkapik. Vorkapich, probably, right? Who is known for his montage work. Vorkapich did the montages in David Copperfield and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He liked to use kinetic effects, lap dissolves, 
tracking shots, creative graphics, and optical effects. Definitely can get a sense of all of those things happening in Empire Strikes Back. Um, and then he ends up getting hired by the United States Information Service to make documentaries all over the world. Irvin Kirshner. He did, went to Iran, Greece, and Turkey, all this stuff. And then he just starts making these really small um, you know, interesting indie films. Um, he made an acclaimed TV movie called Raid on Enteb and uh, a supernatural thriller that I've heard of, Eyes of Laura Mars. Have you ever seen that starring Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones? I mean, yeah, that's supposed to be, it's something I know I should know about. It's written by John Carpenter. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's just got this fucking fascinating life story. So, of course, when he's teaching, um, and I've never heard that before either. I've never heard of, and I'm sure it exists, but I, so rarely do you hear of somebody hiring their teacher, yeah. you know? I mean, it's really amazing. And, 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 and then for him to go on and make, you know, the greatest film in the, arguably the greatest film in the trilogy of one of the most memorable, you know, trilogies Big sci-fi blockbusters well, like was, of all it's time. A, it's a double-edged sword because um, Kirshner, even after Empire Strikes Back, gains a reputation for being a notoriously slow director, always going over time. And a lot of stories about the behind the scenes uh, involves them going back and shooting take after take after take until they're satisfied. Um, everything from the I love you, I know, to like all the fight scenes, the Yoda scenes, uh, you know, they went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, trying to get that perfect take, which Lucas, uh, you know, is has always had a trouble with human actors. He was more like about the technical aspects of filmmaking. And uh, in behind the scenes footage, you can see like on A New Hope, literally like they're just making fun of <laughs> like the actors. You can see footage of Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill openly mocking George Lucas to his face. Uh, but Kirshner is like getting real deep. He's wow. talking to everybody. Nobody mocks the Lukey boy. I can't believe they did that. That's, what do you think happened to Carrie Fisher? You think that was a medical accident? What? Is that, or we're putting that on the record, Lukey boy? I, it's, ha, ha, ha. You don't, you don't fuck with the Luke. First of all, I just want to thank you for sitting quietly and creepily in the corner just for any time we might mention the Luke. This is boy. a hologram. This is a hologram. Yep. I, I believe it. Industrial light and magic has, uh, <laughs> allows me to project myself in any room on the Eastern seaboard. That's amazing. I a hundred percent believe that. So Kirshner, uh, has the movie pretty much fully storyboarded. He knows exactly what shots go where, uh, which was important because the special effects team needs to know exactly what shots they need to get. Um, and so he's like talking to Carrie Fisher. He's talking to Harrison Ford and he's just like, you know, he's getting up in their face and telling them exactly what the cadence is. Uh, Kirshner even claims that uh, and all actors love to get line reads. Yeah. So really the best directing approach. They possible. were for, uh, Mark Hamill was just beaten to a bloody pulp and hanging upside down for hours on end, <laughs> running back and forth from <laughs> yeah, the hospital because his son was born um, during filming. Mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, when he's hanging upside my, down over my the favorite cloud city, is, is, he had just gotten back from the hospital where his wife. Oh wow! My, my favorite is Hoff. The Hoff sequences um, uh, were and Harrison and Fisher are drunk off their ass the yes, entire time. Yes, the, if we're lucky. Oh, to. I love in the interview she did too about showing up super hungover after partying with like Monty Python and the Rolling Eric Stones. Eric Idle and the Rolling Stones. She was like. Uh, Harrison and I don't really drink as a rule, but we decided to get crazy this one night. I'm like, yeah, right, fucking Leia. No, she's in, in a, <laughs> I don't want to make, you know, she lived a life and she is like yeah. genuinely an incredible, she's genuinely an incredible gift. I movies. love her Broadway special. Watch it. I think it's still on HBO now. It's so good where she talks about all of her substance abuse issues and everything. So, I mean, this is stuff that she's been really candid about in, uh, at this point. Um, but, uh, Rest like there would be lost days just because Carrie was like so hungover. Mm. Um, there's, uh, <laughs> uh, this, if you want to know like the height of it, the scene where, um, Billy, uh, Billy D. Williams and, uh, greets the Millennium Falcon on Bespin every, that was the night after the, uh, that was the day after the infamous Rolling Stones party night. Yes. Uh, everyone's a little bit out of it. Uh, and this is a story again from the, uh, from the book, uh, Fisher said uh, that uh, is it's oh he uh, Billy D Williams said something unmentionable as he kissed my hand during that shot, <laughs> and I said something dirty right back. Oh, that's fun. Um, Do you think it was like fuck? I'll fuck you and I'll 
suck you. I mean, he's an old smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so and by and Billy D. Williams, so fantastic in this. Uh, going back to, I've, I feel like we super jumped ship from Mark Hamill getting tortured. So when the, the all the hot stuff was shot in Norway and they had the worst um, uh, snowstorm in, in fifty years, uh, it, temperatures dropped to negative twenty degrees Fahrenheit um, with eighteen feet of snow falling, um, and it got to one where the crew was unable to leave their hotel. They actually shot Mark Hamill running like out the into the snow whatever um they just made him like run out into that from the hotel yeah. while everyone was like warm and filming from the warmth of the, the hotel camera room. was they pointed the camera through the doors <laughs> of the hotel and just sent mark hamill into just the white snow just a super fucking nightmare oh this is actually uh while we're talking about uh those early hot scenes uh sure. this, it's an urban legend that it was uh Mark Hamill's car accident on the scene of uh, Corvette right. Summer mm-hmm. was the reason why he was attacked by the Wampa early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you know, he did not have that many. He did like the visible scars weren't really so horrendous that they had to like go to all that trouble. It was just kind of proof that like the war was taking its toll on on our cast. Mm hmm. So so um and and uh so let's go let's take it back a, a little ways before we get more into the actual filming just to round out kind of where they got to with the script and with our director here um first of all uh, Irvin Kirshner said about Empire and why he did end up deciding besides his uh, accountant being like do you know how much money 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 we're gonna lose um how why he decided to uh, take up the job he said I was grabbed by the fairy tale which Lucas invented and wanted to be a part of keeping it alive and about his own filming uh and i think that again this really plays i think a lot uh of uh or really reads true for what he did in empire strikes back he says i like to fill up the frame with the characters faces there's nothing more interesting than the landscape of the human face and i especially feel that way during those luke skywalker scenes at the very end when he's hanging by a thread and you just have just his face just this anguished face screaming like it's and you just see all the details in his fucked up head you know and it's just really cool so anyways um uh talking about talking about the luke's father stuff um uh, he does uh, back in the early drafts. Darth Vader does not reveal that he is Luke's father. Um, he d- he does appear as a ghost to, or Luke's father does actually appear as a ghost to instruct uh, Luke. Um, and and then George Lucas uh, starts writing his new scripts and everything after uh, the Lee Brackett uh, initial draft. Um, and uh, that is when he does two things. Uh, during this apparently this prolific moment where he just like finally got out of his kind of roadblock with the scripts, uh, he ends up numbering the script episode five and he adds the Luke's father twist. And that's when he really gets going. Um, and then he decides to darken the story even more with Han Solo, the Han Solo carbonite freeze plot element. Well, that. I get. I mean, there and was then also, he brings in Lawrence Kasdan. That is what is reported. Is Luke? Is George I, Lucas like uh, Stan Lee at all with any of this? The way I heard, I mean, there's going to be a million. Uh, one of the weird, there's uh, there, you know, there's conflict. It's Rashomon effect. Uh, one of the things that gave me an eyebrow raise was Kirshner claiming that like he coached uh, James Earl Jones's delivery for the entirety of his lines is Darth Vader, that it's like his performance through him. And I was just like, oh, okay. Urban. What? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the way I heard the Carbonite thing was uh, of the actors, Harrison Ford was the only one that didn't commit to three pictures. So they genuinely did not know at any given time whether or not he could appear in uh, Return of the Jedi. And that's why they put him in a freeze. In fact, Harrison's character, I mean... Sorry, Harrison was like begging George Lucas to let him die because he thought his character <laughs> had kind of like done all it could after Empire. Huh. And if you look at how they treat Han Solo in Return of the Jedi, yeah. it kind of makes sense. He's a, yeah. you know, he's blind, he's fumbling, he's like just kind of a goofball yeah. in Return of the Jedi. So True. it's 
it's kind of it's kind of interesting. So that's where I heard where Carbonite came from. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of dispute. And and to be honest with you, uh, having been in like a group that wrote a lot of material and stuff, being in Murder Fist, yeah. I will share that like. Uh, I, I feel like everybody remembered things differently and everybody remembered that they came up with this or that and then everyone else was dead certain. No, I came up with that sketch idea. I can't, like, it's weird how memory works when it comes to creative stuff that people, I think, legitimately actually get their wires crossed on a lot of that stuff and aren't necessarily trying to take all the credit per se, you know? But you just remember shit different. Like, I really... There have been moments where I'm like, I swear to God I came up with this. And Eddie would be like, no, dude. It was like a totally different place in time. I came up with this. So anyways, um, okay, so... Uh, uh, going back to Hoth, um, those sequences uh, were uh, done uh, using uh, artist Michael Pengrazio, who painted the landscapes with the Imperial Walkers shot using stop-motion animation in front of them. He also painted the final shot of the government warehouse in Raiders, uh, and he and that is actually known as one of as one of the greatest achievements in filmmaking history when it comes to integrating li- like a live action <clears throat> human with mate mate is it mate matte paintings matte paintings i always think it's mate because the way it looks anyways he is like the fucking master at like drawing landscapes and then integrating it perfectly with the the filmed material and i have to agree i had no idea that the end of raiders was painted and that it was uh, uh that that is insane to me that they were able to like insert a dude in that looks so real. Uh, part of the appeal I think of Empire for me especially is that you know I watched on VHS as a kid. Yeah. So like those matte paintings really did blend in effort. Like there was nothing more real than that giant void at the bottom of Bespin. Uh, you yeah. Know, everything everything felt like really natural. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that CGI always, especially when it was first introduced, felt really fake. Um, and and does that stuff show on like a Blu-ray more now? Like, is that the kind of? I mean, it feels like Star Wars, though. You know, yeah. it's kind of the artistry and the and the Macquarie thing is the designs are so strong. Yeah, and it's like so mirror good. the what's happening so well that it almost it almost feels you accept it in a way that. You know, I, I just keep thinking of like the Scorpion King monster at the end of Mummy Two. <laughs> That's so we um, can bring it up. Let's try to find a way to bring that up every episode. Uh, so there's a lot of technical achievements in this yes. movie. Uh, the fact that the Battle of Hoth takes place outdoors in snow was such a like fuck you move on the account of George Lucas because the uh, technologies that they use, uh, everything from stop motion to the Tektronic camera moves. You mean go motion? An entire new uh, technique was invented, who uh, by Phil Tippett, who created the ATAT Imperial Walkers, um, which incorporates motion blur into the stop motion to make it look way more real, which is so the case. Like you see stop motion, you know it's stop motion, but with this go motion technique, those motherfuckers look real. Mm-hmm. Those giant walking machines. And uh part of the brilliance of the editing of Star Wars is the way that these flash there's really very little like on screen stuff stuff happening it happens in like 25 frame flashes of special effects and and miniature shots that when moved to when like you know you're going back and forth from the cockpit to the snow speeder to the adats to back in the base and it's all like hitting you so quickly that you you believe it you don't have time to linger on exactly how fake everything is and just even matching the snow you know which is a bunch of miniatures on a palette of baking soda and glass beads uh, that it actually matches the actual Norway shots that they're getting was an achievement at the time because back then these are all like you know these are analog tricks so every time you transfer them over into film to composite everything you lose quality everything like mistakes become all the more uh, apparent especially during those days where you can't just color correct everything so the fact that they pulled out the Battle of Hoth was insane at the time absolutely um, you know the the all the uh, Hoth soldiers. 
uh, at the Rebel base are the Norwegian Ski Rescue Squad. Yes, and then he made a donation to the Norwegian Red Cross afterwards. None of them spoke English. Like the second (laughs) AD or whatever the unit director was, because Kirshner wasn't there for those shots. There's footage of him just like yelling, being like, okay, so then you're you're like, oh no, he's British. So he's like, he has a cigarette out of his mouth. And he's just like, all right, so you're over here and you see, you turn this way and there's a laser and you need to go like, ah, does he understand what I'm saying? He doesn't know what I'm saying. You, you, you see the laser. <laughs> just, and all these just perfect Nordic like teenagers being like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was hoping to find some connection between that and the thing. Um, uh, but I don't know, like that maybe, maybe I, I still like to think that uh, a couple of those soldiers were the guys in the beginning of the thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, also, you know, uh, of course there's Yoda, which we did talk about on our last episode, which I'm wondering now why, because Yoda doesn't make an appearance until Empire Strikes Back, but we talked about how he was originally going to be a monkey or whatever. Uh, there was, oh God. But but uh, I don't have any of that stuff, because I know we covered that, but I will say he was designed by Stuart Freeborn. And if you look at a picture of Stuart Freeborn, he's Yoda. <laughs> yeah, it's based on his own face. He just added Albert Einstein wrinkles. Um, Lucas said about uh, Stuart Freeborn, Stuart was already a makeup legend when he started on Star Wars. <laughs> he brought with him not only decades of experience, but boundless creative energy. His artistry and craftsmanship will live on forever in the characters created. His Star Wars creatures may be reinterpreted in new forms by new generations, but at their heart, they continue to be what Stuart created for the original films. It's a shame I had to take him out because he crossed me. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying all that stuff, Lukey Boy. Also, I know you're appearing... Don't sleep tonight. I'll watch you. <laughs> I know you're appearing... for a moment to strike. <laughs> I know you're appearing to us as a hologram, but can you please turn back in your original form and stop shape-shifting into naked Jar Jar Binks with female breasts? This is my true form. No, it is not. You're finally awakened enough to uh, witness me. Oh, yeah. Witness me, Holden. Ugh. Or you'll end up in the ground why like is, all those other old Hollywood hacks. Why is milk shooting out of them? Ugh. Um, so anyways. Think, you got a thing for milk. <laughs> I bet you do, Lukey boy. <laughs> Stuart Freeborn also did the makeup on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Specifically, he did the apes. Uh, he also did Chewbacca. Um, he's, he's the man. Uh, uh, apparently, uh, Lukey Boy originally approached Jim Henson to be Yoda, um, and but he was too busy with other projects, specifically and the Great Muppet Caper, specifically which the Great was Muppet also Caper. filming in London. Oh, amazing! And uh, there's footage. There's at the very least there's pictures of uh, Jim Henson visiting Frank Oz on the set, awesome with the Muppets, and there's Frank Oz talking to Mark Hamill as Miss Piggy. The Yoda, oh god, the Yoda set was a horrendous slog on an already behind um, picture. The effects of like Yoda being, you know, micro controlled eyes with him, with Frank Oz being below the ground so he can stick his hand up through the floor. Uh, They're communicating via radio and the radio keeps giving out. So uh, Mark Hamill through a, through, you know, a tiny earpiece is losing the signal and can't hear his lines. Uh, Mark Hamill talks about how, like if he moved his head a certain way, he'd start picking up BBC One and just be like, "Oh, now I'm getting the Rolling Stones." Like wow. I can't, I can't do oh this. Oh my god! Uh, the film was already running behind during the Odyssey. Do you know why? So, so first of all, okay, they're no, no longer in Norway at this point. Filming moves to um, uh, Elstree Studios in London. Do you know? So the reason Elstree is in Elstree. So the reason why a studio got uh, or, or filming got so behind was largely due to a fire that happened on a different soundstage, and it was. Do you know this? Uh, there's, I mean, and it there's was caused, so many fuck ups. It caused the budget to be increased from eight eighteen point five to twenty two million, and it was all the fire was from Kubrick's The Shining, which was being shot on a soundstage in the exact same studio, and it fucked their whole schedule Wait, up. You heard it? It was. A, I thought it was a fire at Empire that uh, fucked with the. Shining. Uh, this says it was a fire okay. in a different soundstage caused uh, it fr- that it was from Kubrick's The Shining. And I did look up um, uh, them talking about the fire. Well, at the end of the day, no one knows the cause of the fire, which is amazing. Um, so, uh, but, uh, 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 oh, no, no. So, so th- there's there's all there's a bunch of fuck ups. Yeah. Um, the uh, so the Haas set took forever to make. Uh, the fact that they use so many close-ups really does not convey how much the Rebel base set was just this gigantic like achievement in set design. Mm-hmm. Um, John Barry, who was the set designer on A New Hope, this was his like crowning achievement, and they were going to tear it all down. He died on set of of meningitis. Um, 
And so, like, they're filming. They're doing all this stuff. They have to tear down sets to make room for another one. They're getting Millennium Falcon shots while, like, while Mark Hamill is shooting other shots and the other thing. Uh, the freezing chamber scene took forever. Uh, it's not dry ice or fog machines <laughs> that's, like, filling the um, the the the... the, the carbonite chamber it's steam they used compressed actual steam to fill the room causing a nightmare sweltering hellscape that uh you know uh, both darth vader and boba fett had to like routinely just take breaks because they were cooking in their costumes Mm. um the heat from the steam started melting the rubber and giving off noxious gases (laughs) uh you know the little pigmen that like forced han solo into the uh the carbonite chamber they're these little pig guys that are like the underclass in Bespin. They like mm. are tearing through a C-3PO in the junk zone. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so uh, the little people kept getting, and this is a quote from the behind the scenes book. Uh, the little people started getting ill, maybe because they were only three feet above the steam, so the noxious fumes blew into their nostrils. I was sick uh, the whole time I worked there. Uh, the smoke got me. Oh, um, my God. We had difficulty shooting on this set. We were built 12 feet up from the stage floor. People had to keep clamoring on that level to get the steam up there. Like, so much of the so much of the on-screen effects, despite all the miniaturization and composition that was going on at Industrial Light and Magic, which is where Lucas was kind of focusing his energy, uh, they were doing so much stuff in camera that if it didn't work, it just set everything back. The actors were hung over and would set stuff back. <laughs> this was Lucas's own money on the table. Right. Uh, That's, again, why you never fund your own film. The uh, the scene, they were so behind that the scene where R2-D2 uh, sinks into the water or, you know, yeah, falls into the water and has to, like, swirl around and then the fish spits him up. Uh, the scenes of his little periscope flying around was actually done in George Lucas's unfinished pool that he had to do himself with a secondary crew just to get the shots. Like, uh, the word that uh, was used to describe this filming was an organized disaster. <laughs> kind of like Evil Dead, which we just recently covered. Um, oh, so uh, in the there's the in the ebook I got, it's an enhanced edition with uh, clips. If you could go to, um, let's see, making it... So this is this is interesting. This is um, a sh- take with Mark Hamill on uh, Dagobah with uh, the actual dialogue of Frank Oz as he was recording it at the time, and this will blow your mind. <laughs> this is the original voice of Yoda as they shot it. Like we're being watched. Oh, I put you up and coming in a harm. Sounds like I'm a Fozzie. Why are you here? <laughs> Miss Piggy. He's just doing yeah, Miss Piggy. For Foz- I think it's yeah. for Fozzie. Found someone you have, I would say. (laughs) So they built a swamp that's elevated by, you know, five feet. Uh, They're doing these performances with remote-controlled bits. If this puppet didn't work, their entire movie would be sunk. Uh, George Lucas was so, like, he eventually had to, like, finally reel in his old professor and be like, dudes, fucking get this. I can't. I can't. I'm dying. You're killing me, Kirshner. Uh, uh, Frank Oz did say, uh, George didn't want my voice in the beginning. I gave him a tape. He said, no, thank you. And in post-production for about a year, I heard that he was auditioning voices for Yoda. He had no intention of using me for the voice. Then I was on my honeymoon with my first wife about 25 years ago or 30 years ago, and he called and said, Frank, can you come out? I think we'd like to try your voice. (laughs) Uh, So I flew back and recorded Yoda. So he actually, yeah. Uh, and no wonder he yeah. didn't want to go with what he was doing. But the eventual, the final product with like the grizzled voice, the eccentric, like the way he shifts from like w- like goofy to wizened was an incredible. Like, there's a reason why in the new movie they went back to a puppet, and George Lucas had sunk so much time and money into getting the Dagobah scenes done that he lobbied um, in kind of a mirror of like the Andy Serkis controversy that shows up every couple of years. Uh, he lobbied hard for Frank Oz to get a supporting actor nomination, mm-hmm. took out ads, did the whole thing. But uh, at the time, they were like, no, a puppeteer isn't an actor. Right, which apparently Oz didn't mind so much, but but George Lucas was very upset about. Um, but, uh, some other little fun facts. Well, I mean, of course, uh, to to round up the Luke's father thing, uh, you know, there was great secrecy surrounding it. Um, even uh, David Prowse, who plays the physical representation of Darth Vader and does, uh, speaking of which, and does his lines mm-hmm. on set, and then they're later recorded by James Earl Jones. Um, he was given a completely false page 
page that read had a line that just read Obi Wan killed your father, um, and um, uh, Hamill, uh, Mark Hamill was literally told moments before his close up about it, and he was he he didn't tell he wasn't allowed to tell anyone. He didn't even tell his wife. Uh, Harrison Ford literally didn't know about the moment until he watched the film in the theaters. Uh, and uh, yeah, by the way, it's no, I am your father, not Luke. I, I am your father. You fucking people. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, uh, some other funny things I found. Um, just looking up like fun facts about the movie. Um, in the asteroid field scene, one of the asteroids is actually a potato. Apparently, uh, it appears just as the Millennium Falcon first enters the field, two asteroids travel from the top left to the top right corner of the screen. Just after the second asteroid leaves the screen, a third one appears in the top left corner. This is a potato. Apparently, also, they corrected this later, but one of them was a shoe. Yeah. And apparently, it's been said that going back on the frustrations people were feeling, that's uh, one of the effects people just got so pissed off during the filming that he just threw his shoe. I mean, who throws his shoe? Uh, there's a reason why <laughs> Lucas, after he made back his money, distributed $5 million in bonuses to his crew. Yes, he did, because the film did quite fucking well. And yeah, he yeah he, he needed to do some payback if they wanted to make a third one. Uh, just real quick, too. The sound of Darth Vader's shuttle door opening is reportedly a recording of a whole block of Alcatraz cell doors slamming shut. Uh, the scenes where R2-D2 is submerged in the mud pool were shot in George Lucas's unfinished swimming pool. I said that. Yeah, you already said that? Very much so. Oh, my God, sorry. I was probably thinking, I was like, I got a bunch of good facts I'm going to tell as soon as Jake's done talking. That's, that's, we don't talk before we record. We kind of just sit down, shit our pants, and record. <laughs> Literally shit our pants. It stinks in um, here. One thing I feel that has to be acknowledged is the fact that uh, John Williams' score is considered one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. If you yes. study, it's so good. If you care about movie soundtracks, this is like, up this is the top uh i don't want to go into his full shtick but the way he uses like light motifs and individual character themes and intermixes them with cues uh a lot of people you know the uh, imperial march that we played only existed in empire strikes back uh the han and leia theme da, na, 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 mm-hmm. na. Na, 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 na. keeps coming back as like kind of this thread throughout the movie yes and uh one of the most this is i didn't realize this until i started studying uh what like the movie music nerds really love is the asteroid field uh, soundtrack mm. because this is like daring do, you know, high flying space maneuvers and they're kind of doing a chase sequence and it builds and it builds to this one mi- this one point. Uh, Super producer Megan, if you can play this. So, you know, they're flying around. They're like it looks uncertain, but then they're making a break. They're like breaking away. This is it. Yeah. Yes. Oh. That's a good. That's a good. Triumphant heroes. And then if you uh, skip ahead to 323, uh, keep it playing. Keep it playing. If you skip ahead to 323, yeah, there. Uh, as they finally escape, if you listen carefully, the Han and Leia theme yep. creeps in there yep. because this is where they're finally like they're going to end up flirting that the Millennium Falcon is has become a place so of good. safety and love after this place of danger and, and also and also a shout outs to London Symphony Orchestra for fucking destroying this and, and so shout hard. out to Herbert Spencer who was uh Williams orchestrator who's actually cuz you know uh Williams would like go over the dailies, go over the the movie, and like try and do these quick sketches of like tunes and melodies and kind of uh, uh, sketches of what the soundtrack would go. And it was Herbert Spencer that actually like translated to something that the wow. orchestra can play. And another big one is uh, the end title, uh, mm. where it kind of goes from, uh, it goes from the you know uh, the feelings of defeat. And the the un, uh, unease of the fact that this is a middle chapter, the fact that this movie doesn't resolve the main conflict and has kind of a downer ending. Yeah, that's like for most kids, that's the first time you don't get a happily ever after uh-huh. in a major piece of entertainment. But this end, the, the way it transitions is so. Just hit play. Just you know, unease. But it's still a little bit hopeful. But now it's like a little mournful. This and it pops. 
Han will find you. Yep. I'm sure you got frozen in a block of brown stuff and the casting they do. And then. Yep. Right into it. Uh, so good. If you keep, if you want like the full treatment, I find the track, listen to it. You get all the, you know, you get Yoda's theme. You get the Imperial March here. Yep. It kind of like plays out it's, everything perfectly. It's the orchestral version of MC Hammer rapping the plot of the movie after it's done. <laughs> so the premiere was at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. on May 17th, 1980. Um, it was marketed as Empire Strikes Back, but the audience was shocked when Star Wars hit the screen with an episode five of the Empire Strikes Back crawl. It was like kind of amazing. It's the first time they'd really see that. They didn't have that in the first one. That was added to the episode four, A New Hope was added later in the 1981 re-release. So it was really kind of shocking. Like, what? Episode 5? What does that mean? Like, that that in itself was like a big twist reveal. Um, within uh, three months, Lucas had recovered his $33 million investment. We already talked about the distribution of he the bonuses. He had pissed off everyone in Hollywood <laughs> and became a weird recluse. His marriage yep. fell apart. Uh-huh. Uh, the film grossed $10 million, uh, do- over $10 million on its opening weekend um, in Limited. It, it, had, release. Yeah, it ended up earning millimeter. 209 million uh, during its first 1980 run uh, and about 450 million worldwide. Um, and yeah, it won this Academy Award for Best Sound Mixing. We already kind of mentioned that. Um, and also, uh, did this on a slightly uh, vague downer note, kind of like uh, the film itself. First of all, I love all the people pissed off about Last Jedi. I think we're going to have a conversation about that and put it out as a bonus episode. Um, but uh, it was fun going back. I know people have probably already seen the articles of saying like, well, these are fan reactions to Empire Strikes Back. I mean, people were felt that Vader, people were convinced that Vader was just lying to Luke. Um, even James Earl Jones thought it was a lie himself. Um, they were dissatisfied with the Han Solo cliffhanger. And, um, of course, there were shippers out there really wanting Leia to go for Luke. He's um, such a nice boy. He's such a nice brother. Uh, uh, so, anyway, but uh, also... Um, God, it, was such a th- it was such a moment when like I was watching <laughs> Empire with uh, my girlfriend. And, like, the first time Harrison Ford appears on screen, she, like, audibly gasps <laughs> at how fucking handsome this scoundrel is. <laughs> Gary Kurtz, um, uh, the producer who was there for all of it up until now, he ends up leaving the partnership with George Lucas after the film. And this quote really is a, such a good tell for where things would end up going from here and why he left. He could say, I could see where things were headed. Uh, and this is in a uh, Los Angeles Times interview in 2010. Uh, the toy business began to drive the Lucasfilm empire. It's a shame. They make three film, three times as much to- on toys as they do on films. It's natural to make decisions that protect the toy business, but that's not the best thing for making quality films. Booyah! That's our episode on The Empire Strikes Don't you Back. Don't touch my toy empire. All right. You know what? First, I'm going to immediately ask you to leave as soon as the recording's done because you've been nothing but release, toxic. Release the gases. Yeah, we will. We will release the gases. By the way, speaking of gases, could you reel it in a little bit? I can smell the beans you ate at lunch. They're imported from Spain. I eat them every day. They cost more than your fucking apartment. Uh, You know you're going to have to start doing an ongoing series. Um, Lukey Boy and H.R. Giger, a conversation. (laughs) It'll be amazing. We're we're just two clammy millionaires. Um, all right. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, if you'd like, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's how you can support us Un- financially. Th- we did not get enough into Empire uh, in this episode. I have so much more I want to gush about. It's going to be a bonus in the uh, Patreon Great. feed. Perfect. Love it. So get your notes ready about how you feel about Darth Vader's slight armor design changes. <laughs> ah, and um, if you'd like to follow me, uh, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I am on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And thank you so much, everybody. Have a good one. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.